Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it, we keep it reels. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. And welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so today we're continuing on with our Richard Dawkins series. And as we were kind of preparing this today's talk, we were, we were looking over the chapter. And again, man, it, this is a really difficult book to address. And namely because he doesn't really take a train of thought and continue it and like discuss it throughout the whole chapter. It's like he kind of keeps introducing individual hornet's nests yeah. and then <laughs> moving on to the next hornet's nest, then moving on to the next hornet's nest. And there's something that I've talked about before in my diagnosing doubt talk. It's the total steamroller tactic to where it's just, I'm going to pile on as much as possible and you're just sort of overwhelmed. So yeah, it's definitely going to take some, some focus just to hone in on this one thing instead of drifting off into all his other challenges. Yeah. And that's exactly what's going on. Again, we've discussed the steamroller tactic in several of the other podcasts. It's just, yeah, you, you go from one thing to the next. And there's something in the diagnosing doubt talk that I do that's called stump the chump. The game of Stump the Chump is where someone is asking questions, not because they really want to know the answer, but because they're trying to say, well, yeah, well, what about, well, what about, and every time you try to Mm -hmm. answer their question, they think, okay, well, I'm moving on to the next one because their goal isn't to get answers to the questions. Their goal is to find the one that you can't answer. And then they say, well, by golly, that's why I can't accept Christianity. Yeah. It's Um, sort of a, whoever has the last word wins. Yeah, exactly. It's not a very intellectually honest position. And so it's just someone, again, it's playing stump the chump. I'm trying to find out which thing is going to stump you most and move on. What we have in this chapter and the the title of this chapter, chapter six, is how do we decide what is good? We're just going to basically pick what I think is, he starts in on it at the very beginning, and then he moves on to other things. And and that is the um, topic of slavery and slavery in the Bible. Here's one of the things that he says about that. Not surprisingly, since the Bible's morality was of its time, slavery is not condemned there. Even the New Testament is full of exhortations like, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So that's Ephesians 6, 5. And here's another one. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. That's First mm-hmm. Timothy 6. So what he's saying right here is that slavery is not condemned in the Bible. And so we're going to be taking another look at that because there's, there's some verses that, of course, he's, he's not citing. One of the verses from Exodus 21, 16, and it says, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. So, Amy, what kind of slavery do you think that is describing right there? Gosh, that is describing much of what we see in the chattel slavery of the pre-Civil War era. You would have tribes, entire tribes that would be captured 
and sold into slavery. And even in with ancient Rome, whenever you would have Rome go into either Great Britain or Germany, they would capture the Angles or whomever and bring them back into Rome and then just sell them off. You know, you got a higher price if you were pretty mm-hmm. or if you could write, if you could speak multiple languages, you know, you would you would be able to get your whoever captured you a, a better price. But it definitely hones in on on that type of slavery where you are just an object to be bought and sold. And we see this with sexual slavery as well. You are just an object to be used and disposed of. Yeah. And so when people hear the phrase slavery, that is immediately what they think of. They immediately go to the pre-Civil War chattel slavery. And anytime they see the word slavery, they import that idea onto there. So when we look at this verse from Exodus 21, 16, so, you know, you can say that you don't believe the Bible, that's fine. But if we are followers of Christ, we're going to say, yes, we believe the Bible and we don't think that it's going to contradict itself. So this verse right here, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. That verse right there basically rules out all of the pre-Civil War slavery. The main question that we have for this podcast is when we ask, does the Bible advocate for slavery? We have to say, is it advocating for the type of slavery that we picture in our heads? Or is there something else? Because basically, our two, we have two options. Either the Bible just completely contradicts itself. And uh, this place here says that if someone does that kind of slavery, they should be put to death. But then all these other verses that talk about slavery say that it's okay. And these things are totally contradictory. Okay, that could be an option. If you Trust the Bible is not going to contradict itself. You have to ask another question is, do we interpret or not do we? I'm just going to say this out. We have to interpret all scripture with other scripture. So using this verse right here, every single passage that talks about slavery, if this is our idea of slavery is kidnapping someone and then selling them, according to this verse, that's worthy of the death penalty. So we Mm. have to ask, is there another type of slavery that is being talked about in the Bible, because we have to look at a couple different things. Number one, you didn't have, well, I might be getting ahead of us. You didn't have any kind of debtor's prison back then. You didn't have any kind of monetary exchange in the sense of, I'm going to give you money for the work that you've done. You didn't have that. You didn't have... um, So basically, we're having to look at... I think you, you brought up a good point about how in the Hebrew, there is no word for slave. There's only servant. Yeah, Paul Copen brings that up in his book, Is God a Moral Monsters? Yeah, it was just talking about servanthood. And you see it in a couple different cases. I mean, even in the case of of Jacob, when he was wanting to marry Leah, he essentially put himself into slavery to Laban for seven years just to be able to get Mm -hmm. a wife. So it was one of those things to where, you know, you didn't go up to the the payday loans back in the day and be able to take a loan to get something. It was, nope, here I am. I'm going to pledge to be your servant. And you see it referenced in Leviticus 25, 47, to where if you were poor, that's what you did. You you sold yourself into slavery for a time. And uh, there's even a stipulation within scripture is by year seven, you had to let your slaves go. So very different from what we traditionally think of as slavery. So here's another one. Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. So that right there would also, if we're going to import that into the pre-Civil War era, when you have slaves that were fleeing to the North, like I I saw, have you seen the Harriet Tubman movie? No, I haven't. Was it any good? Oh my gosh, it's so good. Yeah. Anyway, so it started out where when they would flee North, you, you couldn't return them to their masters, but then you had people that were trying, you know, politicking. 
and saying, well, you know, we don't want to make the South really mad. So we're going to make it to where if people come up here, they can come and, and capture runaway slaves. But again, according to this verse, that's not okay. So again, main gist that we want to get today is this idea that when people see the word slave, they mm-hmm. import pre-Civil War era slavery, and they immediately assume that's what all sla- the references to slavery mean. You and I could like reinvent the wheel and do this from scratch, but honestly, there's a really awesome, brilliant scholar who's super hot also. Amazing um, beard. Yes, uh, his name's Dr. John Ferrer, and I uh, have it on good authority that he's just, um, yeah. <laughs> He has a talk that's called, Does the Bible Advocate for Slavery? So we could basically either try to recreate everything he did, or we could do what we did with some of the previous podcasts with Simon Brace and basically just listen to to John talk about this and put it on pause occasionally and discuss it because I think that he's very thorough. So we're probably going to have to divide this into a couple podcasts just because it's going to be too long, especially with the, the stuff that we're talking about in between. But I think it's an extremely, extremely thorough treatment of this topic. So if someone really has a question about does the Bible advocate for slavery, I think if you're truly listening to this with an open mind and not just, you know, again, importing our pre-Civil War area slavery idea into every single verse in the Bible, then it it might start to make sense. So without further ado, we're going to go to my husband, Dr. John Ferrer. I got to get up close to it, huh? I'm going to have to like get my beard hair stuck in this to, so that you can hear me. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, the topic for tonight, does the Bible advocate slavery, is a very delicately phrased question. Uh, this is not, does the Bible have passages that reflect permission towards slavery in a different culture or a different time? This is, does the Bible advocate slavery? So I want to start us out with a little thought experiment. If, by the way, you you can't quite see the screen, feel free to adjust, move. I'll try to to reflect the text of the screen, regardless of whether you can see it well or not. But I want to start with a thought experiment. Imagine you're speaking to a young girl trapped in slavery. She's in a foreign country. Most everyone around her thinks slavery is okay. If she's rebellious, she'll get tortured or killed. If she runs away, her family will get tortured or killed. And it does not look like slavery will be abolished in that part of the world anytime soon. What advice would you give her? Okay, I kind of want to stop right there just to to say what John is doing here. He is orienting this conversation that a lot of times people think of, well, why couldn't we just immediately change culture? And so, or like, why do we have these verses in the beginning that talk about slavery? Like the ones that we, that uh, Richard Dawkins cited, why are they even there in the first place? So the question that John is asking is a a very realistic question. You've got a girl in slavery who it doesn't look like slavery is going to be abolished anytime soon. If she disobeys, she'll she'll get beaten or killed. And if she rebels and tries to run away, her family will get killed. What Mm. advice do you give her? Now, is the advice that you give her going to reflect an ideal? What do you mean by that? Or is it going to reflect reality? Ah, there we go. So we have this idea of that uh, the Bible should always be striving for ideals. And there are a lot of places where it does. But at the same time, it also strives for change within already existing societies. And and hopefully there's going to be a time in this talk where we can discuss this more. But from what we've seen, whenever you have an entire generation that is totally steeped in a type of thought, that you really have to, it's really kind of sad. You have two options because people don't change their minds quickly. 
basically the people who have the previous thoughts basically have to die off and you have to be raising up a new generation that has a different mindset. Now, what happens though, is if, if the people dying off of the previous mindset just die of natural causes, they're still passing on yeah. their ideas to the next generation. So it, it takes a lot longer for ideas to take root mm-hmm. when you're trying to work within culture. And even change, it's it's a process. It takes time. I mean, you think of after World War II, it took years and years of the countries to sort of rebuild themselves and change government. So mm-hmm. it's not something that is an easy switch. I mean, maybe if there was that sort of like men in black mind wiper thing that we could <laughs> use, you know, and just sort of reset everybody, that would be great. But again, that would infringe upon free will and that sort of thing. And so, so yeah, it's it change is it always sounds easy. It's, you know, it's easy to write it out on paper. Um, as anyone working on resolutions will know, it takes a lot longer and it's a harder process to actually implement it. One of the things that bothers me about the U.S. is the fact that we don't use the metric system. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and I, I was actually dumb. super glad we didn't use metric when I was a kid. Oh my gosh. It's so much easier. So it's like, if you want to change from, you know, centimeters to inches, you got to multiply by 2.54 going from feet. It's in, you know, groups of 12 inches. Versus the metric system, you just multiply things by powers of 10. Mm. It's super easy to convert one thing to another instead of being like, okay, how many cups in an ounce? And, you know, all these things. (laughs) So basically what I've decided is in order to switch over to the metric system, we would have to basically sacrifice one a generation Mm. that's just confused all the time. Yeah. Because you have to start the kids with it. The parents wouldn't know what was going on. You'll have one generation that just majorly screws it up and is just confused the whole time because they were taught one thing and it's going into another. So basically, anytime you have a massive change of thought, that's what you have to have is you're going to have one generation that's uh, sacrificed in some way. Yeah. Now we have ways of enforcing the metric system in the sense of if that's what the schools are teaching, if that's what all the, you know, the speed signs are, you know, there's ways of reinforcing that to where people can't get around that. What you have, what we see in Israel, and especially in the conquests of Israel, is you have people with some pretty whacked out thoughts. So if you, if you go back to our previous podcast that's talking about child sacrifice, we go through who, and I think Dawkins even makes this comment about, oh, the poor people that Israel came to conquer. <laughs> no, <laughs> they were not these like sweet little people just doing the best that they could. We had massive child sacrifice. We had yes. the way they worshiped was basically prostitution. It mm-hmm. was just very, very depraved. And in fact, it talks in scripture. I can't remember where this is. The reason why the Israelites were enslaved for so long before they came and conquered those places, God was saying, I'm letting the, what is it? He's saying, I'm letting the wickedness of these places come to full. Like basically he's not going to come down with the full boom of judgment until they've gotten so bad that they just deserve to, to be wiped out. And this totally makes sense when you see in later passages about how he's saying Israelites don't interbreed with other nations and cultures and that sort of thing. It's because God understood that once you start letting in this sort of yeast that's used as a reference in the New Testament, once you start bringing in these different cultures and things, pagan worship, it does start infecting the culture and you see it growing and spreading, which is why Solomon, David, all of these men who started in, who were so on fire for God, once they started marrying into other pagan cultures and that sort of thing, they were gradually influenced by these ideas. And so it, it's yeah. just a warning of, you know, how potent these are. Yeah. In fact, uh, Clay Jones has some stuff that uh, he talks about in terms of the killing of the Canaanites. Like, why were they called to do that? So, which that, that brings us back to this, this idea of 
if we want to change a culture, if we try to do it slowly, or if, if we try to just introduce new ideas into a culture, it takes a long time to take root, unless it's reinforced by other things. The other option is basically killing off the generation that had the previous beliefs. And so this is actually what we see happen in Israel, that you have this entire generation coming out of slavery that doesn't know how to stay faithful to the one true God. They don't know Basically, they, it's, it's like a whole generation of people with PTSD. And so that's why they basically wander in the desert for 40 years, mm-hmm. is the Lord's having to raise up a new generation that can go into the land, stay faithful to Him, ideally, but at least not be coming out with the same baggage. And, and like, there's a bunch of different times where you see the, the nation blow it royally. And basically, the Lord opens up a pit and like, you know, 300,000 fall into the ground. Basically, mm-hmm. th- there are certain types of depravity that can't be uprooted slowly without basically killing off an entire generation. So when it comes to slavery, this is something that was deeply, deeply, deeply embedded into basically every culture mm-hmm. that has ever existed. And our options here are if we want something to change quickly, there's going to have to be a lot of massive deaths in a new generation that had something from the outside in reinforcing these new beliefs which this is exactly what we see happen when the Israelites come and take over the places in the promised land is basically having to kill off that generation that was so wicked that the Lord said enough. Right. But the second option is having to introduce it slowly. And this is what we see probably happening within slavery in the Bible is it's introducing healthier approaches in a way that is slowly changing culture instead of just Chunk, you know, yeah. getting it all done in well fell, one fell swoop. If people think that there's something other than these two ways of doing it, if you think that there's some way to change culture immediately without having some kind of massive death of the people who believe previously or without it going slowly, I would like to hear it. I don't think it's, you'd be able to. Things. I'm thinking of, you know, like if you had maybe a military force that came in and enforced it, but that wouldn't be like them adopting those beliefs. It's more of I'm going along with it so we don't get wiped out. Yeah. You don't change people's minds with military force. You can change their obedience, but you don't change their minds. So if the Lord is opting to try to change people's minds, he has the option of basically killing off that generation or having to go slowly. So again, I wish those weren't our two options. And I I don't think this is a false dichotomy. I would like someone to tell me, in fact, listeners here, if you think there's a way that would actually work, that doesn't involve one of those two options, I would like to hear it. So anyway, Mm. that's, that's a long side for Okay, so we're, we're picking back up for when John said, you know, our, our thought experiment here that you've got a girl who's in slavery, who if she disobeys or rebels, she'll get beaten. If she tries to run away, her family will get killed. What advice do you give her? This is not advice that we're saying this is going to change the culture. This is, this is reality. What's the best advice we can give with this reality? So we're going to continue on. Let that sink in a little bit. Someone is trapped in slavery, and all the options are closed doors as far as escaping. What advice do you have for a person in that situation? Now, this isn't an actual slave girl. That's Dakota Fanning from the movie Hide and Seek. So she's not an actual slave. No children were harmed in the making of this presentation. Now, the quick answer to this is probably going to uh, annoy at least half the audience and vindicate the other half. But the quick answer is no. But it's complicated. There's several steps we're going to go to in establishing that. But I think the end result is likely to disappoint people who think there's a simple answer one way or the other. So I'm probably going to disappoint a lot of Christians 
and I'm probably going to disappoint a lot of atheists uh, or make them angry. Um, but I've seen that already. I expect as much. <laughs> <clears throat> so first we're going to, with a little preface in place, we're going to then diagnose the problem, looking at a few different cautions that are in place. Uh, then we're going to do a bit of a damage assessment. <laughs> what What's the fallout? What kind of things are we trying to understand and account for? And the negative case against slavery, there's a negative case as in uh, what's not being said, uh, sort of an indirect way. And there's going to be a positive case after we get to the uh, history lesson on slavery. But to unpack the negative case, we're going to look at how not everything in church is Christian. Not everything in scripture is promoted. Not everything for them is for us. And then a challenge of let's see you do better. <laughs> Let's go over those three things that he just said. Let's see if I can remember those. So the first thing he said was not every, well, Let's not see. everything in church is Christian. Not everything in church is Christian. So basically he's kind of doing the chew and spit here. This is, and this is kind of like what we talked about in some of our previous podcasts of right. not everything that happens in the Old Testament is something we want to replicate. It's like the Old Testament is kind of like uh, the story of going from one failure to the next, which brings us to his other point. Not everything in scripture is to, oh man, I wish I, do you remember what his other two points were? Uh, not everything let's, is. Let's just rewind it a little bit. Okay. To unpack the negative case, we're going to look at how not everything in church is Christian. Okay. That's our first one. Not everything in church is Christian. Uh, okay. So here's the second one. Not everything in scripture is promoted. Ah. Not everything in scripture is promoted. We talked about this previously, about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. So can mm -hmm. you remind us what the differences are between those? So descriptive is basically where it's just describing a situation. Oftentimes you'll see people who are maybe having some moral failures and that sort of thing. That doesn't mean you're supposed to engage in actually killing your brother or prostitution or anything <laughs> like that. It's just sort of describing the situation. Whereas prescriptive, that's where you get more into love your neighbor as yourself, that sort of thing. So, and it's, those two can be confused. And even with the, the not everything in church is Christian, I think that's so important because Dawkins hits on it a bit in his other chapters too, to where he sort of takes these church wounds that people have and use it as justification mm -hmm. that God is bad. And it's, we're, we're making a huge mistake here when mm -hmm. we take the moral failings of human beings and say that that is somehow God's failings. Okay. And here's the third one. Not everything for them is for us. Not mm. everything for them is for us. So if you're dealing with a culture that has slavery as its norm, this is advice for what to do if you're in this situation. Not mm -hmm. if you don't have slavery, you should go back to slavery because this is how things should be. Yes, context um, is king. Understand context. who it's being said to, why it's being said, the purpose, and then translating it for today. It's interesting that you say that because John has actually done a debate with a guy who his number one thing is just slavery in the Bible of he wants to write a book called If I Were God, which as soon as he announced that, I like took a step back, like waiting for the lightning bolt. But his, his main thing is he, he can't get past the slavery issue. And mm -hmm. in one of John's formal debates, he asked him, do you care to understand the history and the context? And the guy said, no. Really? He Did he said, say why? Well, if you don't want to know the history, the no, he just, he just thought, you know, there, I, I think he had this assumption that there is no history. There is no context that can justify using the word slavery. Oh, wow. And he flat out said he didn't care. And John's like, well, if you don't care about the history and context, then you don't care about the concept. That's again, this is a stump the chump. He doesn't care what's actually being said. 
he just wants to have one more, you know, finger to point at God. Yeah. So moving on, we're going to, we're going super slow. This might be a three parter here with the speed we're going. And then a challenge of let's see you do better. Ah, actually, that was the last one. Let's see you do better. I think a lot of these things sound really damning until mm-hmm. you try to think of a better system. Like yeah, we talked true. about our options of uh, if you have something that's really in, inculcated, is that the word, in, in, a, in a culture? Yeah. Your options are you either change it slowly or you kill off a generation of people who believe it. And if you would like to show me a way that it's ever worked to do something other than that, I'm welcome. That's the let's see you do better. And again, this is a conversation we had with the guy who had the the big issue with slavery is what do you do? And, and John will get into this. What do you do in a culture that has no debtors prison, that has no monetary currency? All you have is trading, trading labor and, you know, goats and stuff. What do you do for people who are in debt? Do you just let them starve? Because you have no banking system, so they can't just borrow money from someone. What do you do? Uh, and you have no standing uh, police force to enforce anything. What do you do? So tell me. It's like all, all these attacks and just accusations lobbed against scripture in these cases, they sound really damning until you say, what are the other options? And if you honestly cannot think of another option that would work, you need to take that into into consideration because the Lord doesn't just snap his fingers and make everything hunky dory. I mean, that's all of my life has testified to that. I don't know about you. Oh yeah. Okay. So moving on. Now those knots are why I call it a negative case. Then we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson because oftentimes our present view on these dicey subjects that have been uh, culturally entrenched aren't well informed with the history of the matter, with the culture surrounding it. If we don't know what the historical context is for a text, quite possibly we don't know what that text means. We know what it means to us, but that should be secondary to what it just plain means. And that's a historically rooted question. I actually had Matt Dillahunty after a debate I did in Tennessee with him. Uh, we were talking about this very subject. And at one point he said, I don't care what the historical context is. And my response was, then you don't care what the text means. All texts are, are contextually meaningful. So the historical context will, will be, uh, I think, interesting. And then the positive case against slavery. The ethical trajectory of scripture is what we're going to use to identify how this stuff applies today. And then the seeds of abolition, as well as what I call the cultural greenhouse. Just real quick, when he says the ethical trajectory of scripture, this would be the concept that we're talking about of changing culture slowly through natural means. That we have to look not only just what scripture says, but where scripture is pointing, because it's trying to take a people to somewhere where they're not right now, Mm -hmm. but not doing it where you have to kill off a whole generation of people that it's working at the pace of the people. So I just wanted to say ethical trajectory. That's what he meant by that. What can we do here and now today in our own lives to help abolish slavery? Because the sad news is we may have established policies that say there should be no more slavery, but we're, we're a far cry from actually abolishing it. Now there's first some cautions because this, it, when someone says, does the Bible uh, promote slavery, advocate for slavery, or when they, they say, what do you think the Bible has to say about slavery? In most cases I've encountered with a critic raising this kind of question, it's a trap. It's a trap because uh, oftentimes, well, let me back up. 
It's a trap if they won't say their motives. If a person won't say why they're asking, that's suspicious. Uh, it's a trap if they're assuming things that will distort the conversation, which, by the way, everybody can be guilty of this, right? This is not just, you know, critics and skeptics and atheists uh, bring presuppositions to the table. Everybody brings presuppositions to the table. And with a little humility, we can evaluate these things and figure out which ones are fair and which ones aren't. And then it can be a trap if it's a smokescreen hiding their prejudgment on the matter. Oftentimes people are asking a question because they're not interested in your answer. They have an answer. And if you don't agree with them, then you'll see the rage come out. So that would be kind of the the um, stump the chump. It's someone who's asking a question because they already have the answer in their own head. And so they're not actually wanting to know Mm -hmm. what the Bible says, they just basically want you to admit that, yeah, there's these verses there. And then they'll say, ha, see, the Bible advocates for slavery, and they won't listen to anything past that. Yep. Okay, moving on. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. Also, it's a trap if they won't answer, if they don't want an answer, and they just want to take jabs at you. I've seen this happen a lot too. Many times people are more interested in the question than the answer. And for them, questions are, are ways to just poke and prod and, and pick at people without actually uncovering learning where both sides can learn a little bit because no one's theology is so refined that they've got nothing to learn. I would just say that I think what he described there is kind of what we're seeing in Dawkins' book. We're not really seeing him trying to explore these yeah. concepts. We're just seeing him wanting to jab. Yes. And he switches from one jab to the next. Yeah, absolutely. Is, and it's great that he brings it up. I've I've had conversations like that too. And it really brings to light the verse about not casting pearls before swine because you you come to realize very quickly their motives just by how they start throwing things at you. And you realize that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you say, you know, it's not going to be good enough. It's not, they're not going to listen, that sort of thing. And so it's one of those situations where you almost have to politely bow out and say, you know, if you'd really like to learn about this more. I'd love to maybe meet up over coffee another day or so. So that way, you know, they kind of, you kind of diffuse the spotlight that they're loving having on the fact that just because I have these questions, that must mean that God doesn't exist. Yeah. So this is pretty common tactic that he's revealing right there. So, okay. No one's atheology is so refined that they've got nothing to learn. Fair? If they, it's a trap if they assign such a low prior probability for God that nothing you say will matter. I ran across this at a debate I did last Thursday at UT Arlington, uh, talking with uh, Professor Williford afterwards, who's in the philosophy department. He, he, he mentioned this. If someone, bring, someone has such a low view of God's existence, that God is so radically improbable that no amount of evidence that you could ever offer would overturn that. Now, that's a way of kind of rigging the debate. You can't win with a card shark. It, they might let you win until you put a lot of money on the table, and then they, then they use their different tactics to win. And this is one of those tactics. This is why it's good to do philosophy and not just theology, so we can get underneath and start to evaluate what's a fair prior probability. Where did we where, how did we frame the conversation in terms of our, our metaphysics and our epistemology and so on? Now, it's also difficult because it's a trigger, which we saw recently in, in a San Antonio charter school, right? I think someone posted about this on the BBC page. A teacher had a, 
When it says BBC, this is where John's speaking at. It's the Bible and Beer Consortium. It's out of Dallas, Texas. So that's what he means by BBC. Just FYI. Find the students who list the pros and cons of slavery as experienced from the, in the life of slaves. Now, now, this wasn't college kids. This wasn't like uh, people with a lot who should have a degree of uh, adulthood, maturity. They can deliberate over things, be dispassionate. This was eighth graders, and it was very poorly framed. It was not just what are some of the pros and cons that the society touted for slavery. How did people benefit from it as a society? It was what did the slaves benefit or, or lose from it? And that was a stupid question. And that's probably what some people think I'm trying to do, which I'm not. <laughs> that's that's a very different different aim. Now, there's good news and bad news to what what I'm going to try to do here. The good news is I think the Bible doesn't advocate slavery as clearly as many of the critics think. But the bad news for Christians is the biblical record doesn't reject slavery as clearly as many Christians think. Uh, apparently, some people have have thrown around the word indentured servitude or indentured servant, debt slaves, and use that as like this big old paintbrush to paint over everything. And that's in there. But if you overuse it, then you're not being fair to the text or the historical context. There's something the theists and the atheists can can glean from the subject if they're willing to look at it and not presume to know it because they've read a book or seen some memes or listened to a talk on YouTube one time. The Bible speaks to both slave culture and free culture alike. This is one of those critical distinctions that gets lost. Scripture is not just speaking to cultures where, where abolition is in reach. It's also speaking to cultures that abolition is not in reach, and it's not going to happen for a thousand years or more. Now, when we go through this talk, I'm still in the preface stage, still kind of diagnosing the issue. We'll get to the good stuff in a second. But it's oftentimes the case that people commit anachronisms. That's when you have things out of historical place. We, for example, fault a first century society for uh, recognizing a solution that we would solve just with our jail system or just a elaborate court system that has lots of checks and balances. Or we've got uh, sophisticated banks that could handle bankruptcy uh, situations. If those are solutions we have, but they don't have those solutions available, we have to understand what solutions did they have? And is this the, the, the next best thing they can come up with? And were there safeguards in place relative to that society? So what he's talking about right there is this again was, uh, I would like to see you do better. Even with building Mama Bear, so like I've got a meeting with Lindsay Medenwelt tomorrow that we're calling the mega meeting because uh, <laughs> we've got like, you know, 140 things on our list uh, to start addressing with Mama Bear that we're really discovering that trying to create systems is really time consuming. If we're faulting a society that doesn't have certain systems already in place and saying, well, all you got to do is this. All you have to do is create a court system. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is create debtor's prison. All you have to do is create bank currency. We don't take into account that that's something that can sometimes take generations to create. Yeah. And perf perfect and, and so, own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, you know, you think of all the ways that things went wrong. We're constantly improving systems. And so what did they have available to them? That's going to be what he's talking about. I just wanted to explain that a little bit more. Slavery is oftentimes used for lots of different things. Uh, some people might even say love slave, and that has a totally different connotation. <clears throat> I'm not quite sure I heard what someone was saying, but anyway, I'll trust it was wholesome. 
Um, and then prejudice, it's prejudice. There's a lot of prejudice that comes into this subject from all sides. Just being honest here. There's a, there is actual racism going on here, and we've seen it uh, happening in the streets uh, in, at least since the election in 2016. Uh, the prejudgment, then proof texting. Citing sources out of context. This is what I was getting upset with uh, Matt Dillahunty about. He was citing uh, a text that was referring to uh, the Mosaic Covenant and, and saying we Christians should be following that. Well, I don't know of any, any Christians except for kind of obscure schisms that think that the that the that the uh, all the laws of, of the Mosaic Covenant apply in the time of Jesus. There's there's a sophisticated theological response which I'll table for now, but there is a different covenant period at work where we're no longer under the law in the same way as back then. So I'm not pushing a theocracy, and most Christians I know aren't. Uh, I don't know that Christian orthodoxy assumes any kind of theocracy of fusing church and. So a theocracy is just a rule by God. It would be a democracy is the rule by the people. Oligarchy would be ruled by you know kings and queens, and a theocracy is basically what Israel had when they were coming out of Egypt is it was ruled by God. So just FYI. State. And so the Mosaic theocratic era is totally inappropriate to just transpose without any translation into the modern context. So proof texting is ignoring the context and just citing it because you found a, a verse that agrees with what you wanted to believe, <laughs> which again, Christians are guilty, right? We do this. We cite the first verse that comes up uh, that, that agrees with us. Special pleading or confirmation bias, also known as cherry picking. This is filtering out the contrary evidence. When we're honest about it, we find evidence that agrees with us and disagrees with us on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, and trying to be honest about what, what's actually out there and what, and then weigh the evidence. You can't just count evidence. If there's a thousand nobodies who say X happened, but the only person who had, who had uh, binoculars at the time and who was actually present is testifying that this didn't happen, then you might have contrary evidence. You can't just count it. You have to weigh it too, but at least consider that there's contrary evidence here. Straw man fallacy. I think many of you are familiar with that. That's just attacking a misrepresentation. And then false dichotomy. This is presenting three or more choices as if there's only two. There's a dichotomy there when in fact there's a trichotomy or more options. And then hyperfundamentalism. Uh, this one I've run into, I, I'm more, more familiar with Christians who are hyper-fundamentalists with texts that they say, if God said it, I believe it, and they don't know how to interpret it fairly in the first place. So they don't quite know what to do with an ancient text in, say, the Mosaic era, and they try to translate it into the New Testament era. When that's a covenant shift, that's a big change. Uh, we have to figure out how that translates, if it translates at all, into the modern era. Hyper-fundamentalism tends to uh, ignore context, ignore historical distinctions, and treat everything in a wooden literal way. I, I generally affirm a little translation of the text, little interpretation, but I think even literal understanding of the text, fairly understood, is going to allow for metaphor, uh, exaggerated language, and so on. I'd also like to mention that uh, Holly Ordway goes into, in one of her books, I can't remember which one, what the, what the meaning is of the word literal. What, is, what does it mean to have a literal interpretation of scripture? And she, she has her PhD in English. And for something to be a literal interpretation, it's not just what do these words say. It's what do, what 
did these words mean from the author to the audience when it was originally written? Ah, that's an important that's distinction. A literal, yeah, that's an important distinction. That's a literal interpretation. Most people, Not it's just, when they think of interpretation, it. it's what's the first thing that comes to my mind and that's what it means. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's not what a literal interpretation is. And this is why context and history is important, is you need to know who is the one speaking and to whom were they speaking. And if you don't have those two things, and what was, what was the culture in which they were speaking? If you don't have those three things, then you're not going to get a literal interpretation of something. So I thought that was worth noting. As well as historical context. And then arguments from silence. Uh, this one's really common. Assuming that since the Bible doesn't condemn, it must approve. Well, that's not what silence says. Silence says nothing. Uh, we should be careful not to interpret silence as a yes or no, um, but rather look for the, the hints and allusions and be fair with it. If it doesn't shout, we shouldn't shout it. If it speaks softly, we should speak softly. If it does shout it, then let's be honest about what it does shout. And then hostile reading. This is a deliberately uncharitable interpretation. Good hermeneutics, that is um, how to interpret uh, a text, is going to, going to use a charitable interpretation. That is, try to be fair. Let them speak in the terms they understand they would have likely intended. Don't try to read into them things that they wouldn't have likely said and, and try to allow some allow the same grace you hope they would extend to you in reading what and listening to what you have to say. Now, there's different options for the the I this slide I added after some of the back and forth I had on BBC. Um, uh, there's different ways that atheists can mount a moral high horse to, to uh, have a loud, exaggerated, condemning tone towards Christians and, and Bible-friendly uh, readers. One is what might be called the Enlightenment bias. Uh, this is a prejudice where people think that because they're products of the Enlightenment, rationalism, science, humanism, so on, they are morally superior to people who are not. Mm -hmm. Now, have you seen that happen, Amy? Oh my gosh, that's everywhere today, isn't it? This idea of uh, we're so much better than where they were before. And there's a talk that Clay Jones does on uh, why does God allow evil? He did his, I believe his, he has a D-min, not a PhD, but his, his final project was on the most delightful topic of genocides. <laughs> oh, goodness. And he, he was asking, you think that you're better than this old other culture? And then he screamed in his talk, thinking that you're better than another culture is the father of genocide. And so it's this idea that if we think that we're better than that other culture, that is where all of this stuff comes. That is where, that's where the seedbed for slavery came from, is thinking that you were better than another culture. And you see that in the quotes that Dawkins includes from even Lincoln, uh, was it John Huxley? who was saying that obviously, I mean, just look yeah, at them. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. And obviously we are, we are more superior. I mean, even petty things like our brains are bigger or our jaws are smaller. Obviously that makes us more superior. It's like, seriously, folks. And you do, you see that correlation between once you start thinking you're better than someone else, you sort of start belittling their humanity until they don't have it anymore. Exactly. And that is exactly what happened in slavery. So the idea that people are using the same arguments that justified slavery to condemn slavery, I think is ironic. Okay, continuing on. Now, I'm not assuming any atheist in here hold to this, but this is a bias that sometimes slips in. Uh, for example, I'm more ethical than they were back then. We understand humanity better than they did. My sins aren't as bad as their sins, and only crazy people would 
shoot up schools or do mass crimes. It's more convenient to believe that only whack jobs would do that kind of stuff. Only ancient societies, only, only really distant, strange people that, that are very unlike us would do that, like Christians. Only those people would, would believe this kind of stuff. But what we actually find when, when you do study on mass crimes is that the, the real muscle behind things like the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide or things like that, the real muscle was normal people who are compliant with the mood of the masses. You only need one, one influential crazy person in power to sway a whole bunch of people who are compliant, just going with the flow. And that's what we actually find in mass crimes. And so there's no guarantee that we're going to be more ethical than people a long time ago, because if we if we remember uh, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And that should have been the most enlightened, complete century that we've had. Uh, Russia and Germany were bureaucracies at the time that they, they were bureaucracies with modern governance when they had their uh, moral fallout. Uh, the single deadliest institution ever foisted on mankind in human history is currently ongoing, legalized in recent times, and proudly defended by people who think they have the moral high ground. I'll leave you to guess what that is. That's abortion that he's talking about. Anyone who knows John, which a lot of the people in this talk would know him, the abortion is the deadliest thing that has ever that we've ever ever introduced into society. And uh, in fact, there's a book, I don't know if he talks about it in this talk, it's by a guy named Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that he argues that violence has been decreasing since, you know, the modern era, hmm. unless you account for abortion. And in that case, it's increased. But he, he doesn't, okay, he's like, well, but that's not that big of a deal. But he still acknowledges it. Gracious. And we think about like uh, the stuff that was going on in the Old Testament with the child sacrifice. And I remember John and I speaking on, I can't remember what it was called. It was, was the killing of the Canaanites genocide or was it justified? I can't remember what it was. And people saying, you know, how did they not know that that wasn't okay to be doing child sacrifice? And John and I said, yeah, how do we not know that that's not okay? Yeah. It's like they didn't even consider the idea that abortion is in the same category. Wow. It's because our sins are common. They're not that big of a deal. Okay, moving on. Now, this, this isn't me trying to say I'm more ethical than you. It, it's more like a level playing ground saying Christians do some bad things, atheists do some bad things. We try to, we try to claim moral high ground over each other, but let's, let's be honest about where we stand first and recognize that we all can learn a little bit here. I've also asked the question before regarding um, what principal grounds does atheism, for example, have for prohibiting slavery? Atheism is not a worldview, right? Atheism is not a system. It's just a lack of a belief or a disbelief in regards to God's existence. And so there's no orthodoxy that prohibits slavery. So atheism has open arms regarding embracing slavers and anti-slavers alike, because if a person's anti-slavery and atheist, they're an atheist. If a person's pro-slavery and an atheist, still an atheist. There's no orthodoxy prohibiting such a, such a position. Likewise, atheism doesn't have any uh, conventional established morality that would say this is a sin. Now, a lot of atheists are humanists, but there's other atheists who are nihilists. 
or irrealists and don't believe that moral facts exist. And so they can't call slavery a sin. How would you define humanist? A humanist is just a high esteem for, for humanity in itself. They're, they're sort of a, a love of person. They think that, don't they believe in inherent goodness as well? Yeah, they do. They believe that man is basically good and they really believe in mankind. So that would yeah. be a humanist. And, and if you actually look at a lot of the, this is going to slightly be off topic, but the literature surrounding Satanism, a lot of people think of Satanism as people actually worshiping Satan when there, there's two different kind of flavors of Satanism. There's the legitimate, you know, demonic stuff that's yeah. going on. But there's another flavor of Satanism, which I believe would be the Anton LaVeyan Satanism that really is just an elevated humanism, the do what thou wilt. And if you read through, which we have the, the satanic Bible in our garage in the, in the, in the, uh, the library decoration. out there, and I've, I've gone through it to read it. Just say what? I said in the Halloween decorations box. Oh, yeah. No, I kind of like the fact that our library is not in the house just for books like that. That's like, yeah, it's kind of nice that that's not in the house. But I, I still, I, I took the time to read it and it was interesting. Just, it was a really interesting read specifically in regards to, I'm like, there's a lot of Christians that if you didn't tell them that this was the satanic Bible, they would be like, yeah, that's great advice. <laughs> it's just elevated humanism. Now, nihilism is this idea of, let me see if I can, I'm not as good with all the, these kind of isms. It's just sort of it's a just purposeless like, look at life. It's like, there is no purpose. Yeah. There's no design. There's no meaning. I mean, it's yeah. very ecclesiastical in a sense. Yeah, no purpose, no meaning, no nothing, nihilism. And then I, I can't remember what the third one he said was. But anyway, th those two right there should, should be helpful. By the way, I'm not saying any atheist here thinks that slavery is okay. But I'm saying what principal grounds within slavery do they have to make these positions? And I'm not sure that atheism is, is the tool for that job. Uh, naturalism, uh, could naturalism have generated moral facts about how things should be? So moral facts, we're going to see that in the Mama Bear book, I believe. Let me see, which chapter is it? Uh, the Moral Relativism chapter, mm -hmm. chapter nine, we talk about moral facts in there. It's this idea that there are certain things in morality that when you disobey it, there are just as heavy a consequences as sticking your hand in a fire. And it would be the idea of unprovoked murder is wrong. This would distinguish between, you know, murder from self-defense or murder from being in a war, but unprovoked murder where there's no reason you just wanted to kill this person that is inherently wrong or the classic example torturing babies for fun there is no society in the world that would say yeah we just torture them for fun and that's okay these are moral facts that you cannot get around this is wrong 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 no matter who you are no matter where you live and this would be different from people trying to make all morals in terms of values where like oh well i value this but they value that so I just wanted to explain that term. This is disputable, but I would suggest that naturalism doesn't generate moral facts. At best, naturalism generates instincts, uh, preconditions, propensities, and things like that uh, through evolution, material forces, and so on. And then, could evolution have wired us to morally sanction slavery? Apparently, it has for many centuries. Up until recently, we have figured out some, uh, some principled reason to disagree with it. So what John is doing here is he is arguing against a lot of times atheists will say that it's called the is-ought fallacy, where mm -hmm. we see what is and we can, you know, nature is basically all there is. And we talk about this in chapter six in Mama Bear the, on the naturalism chapter. We can't get oughts, meaning this is what you should do based on nature. 
you don't get morals from nature, you get survival. And survival isn't always necessarily doing the right thing. That series that John wrote, Can You Get Moral Facts from Nature, I believe is what it was called. It was just so well oh, done. Oh, Nature is a Jerk. Yeah, that's right. Nature <laughs> is a Jerk. Oh my gosh. It's, it's a great series because yes, he covers that you don't get this from nature. You don't get any sort of moral oughtness from nature, which is what Kant and Hume uh, struggled with is, well, how do we bridge this gap? And they just weren't able to do it. So basically an atheist worldview is having to come in and all they have is nature to determine if something's right or wrong. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, if you are bringing your atheism in to say that slavery itself is wrong, then you need to show where you got this idea from. It's not saying, I I think we talked about this in one of the other previous Dawkins podcast is we're not saying that you can't know right from wrong. You just can't, you don't have the ability to ground it to say, this is why it's right or wrong. Right. Because you can't get that from nature. So anyway, I find that I'm stopping this a lot more. He he speaks a little bit more academic than I guess the one that we did with Simon Brace, but I think it, I think it's still for this topic, it's very thorough. So I'm willing to, to help break it down. (laughs) Yeah. For the mama bears. But evolution isn't necessarily going to guarantee that the outcomes that we deem moral are in fact correct. They could be incorrect or just illusory. So that's just, that. that's kind of saying worldview wise, we need to remember that if we're going to have moral high ground, we need to earn it. We can't presume it. Mm. If a Christian is going to claim moral high ground, they need to earn it too and can't presume it. Now what's the damage? So I think uh, just for the, for sake of length or, or time, I let's stop it for there. It might take us probably about three three podcast episodes to get through this whole thing. But again, this is such a commonly lobbed attack against Christians and against the Bible that I think having a thorough understanding of all the um, moving parts is right. really really important. Even though, again, kind of like we said, Dawkins doesn't really go through a line of argument. He kind of starts out with, he starts out with slavery. Then he goes into women's rights to vote. And what was the other one he went into? He went into something else. Oh yeah. Wars. And so he just kind of flits from one topic to another and he doesn't really explore the topics. But the fact that he brings up this topic, I think is worth going through in depth because I have heard this argument so many times. Yes. And I love the accountability um, that John brings into it because he's saying, look, this isn't just something, this isn't this intellectual honesty that we are demanding. It's not just on the atheist side. The Christians have to meet this too, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing is if you're reading along with Dawkins' book, or if you've just been listening to the podcast, you'll notice right away that a lot of these challenges that John is saying that we have to meet this honesty, this recognizing the other side, Dawkins just doesn't do throughout his book. No. And that doesn't mean that, well, because he doesn't do it, his argument should be discounted. No, we still need to listen and hear what he has to say, of course, because again, we have to be honest as well. But I just love that he brings that balance that's saying, look, here's the standard and it's not just atheists that have to meet it, it's the theist as well. I absolutely agree because I I think everybody has a propensity to be dishonest if they're really committed to an idea. And I'm sure you and I don't even, you know, always hit the nail on the head, but we really do try our best to try to pick through these ideas and, and really understand them. So, so that, that'll be part one of this, of who knows how many for this slavery, since I'm having to stop it like every 20 seconds to explain some term that he's said. But again, I think it's really important to, to get a good grasp around this. So Amy, would you like to pray us out for today? 
Lord, thank you that we are able just to gather here and to wrestle with this tough issue. Thank you for John, who has just really broken this down and has is shining light on it that's holding this accountability to everyone involved. He, you know, the, the charitability that's here is so needed, especially in our culture today where it is, it's not about charity really. It, uh, here's what I feel. This has to be right. And anything you say against me, I have to defend against it, sometimes even with violence and that sort. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to think well and to wrestle with these issues well. So I just pray over all those who are listening right now and they are edified by this podcast. If the terminology is challenging, Lord, I pray that you will help them to grasp that and encourage them, Lord, to to dive into some of these deeper waters because this is where this is where the battle is. And so we just ask for for your guidance, your wisdom, their perseverance through this. And just thank you that we can gather together to wrestle with this here. And because we know, Lord, that when you when you're putting it before us, it's because we're going to end up encountering it at some point, whether it's in discussions or in talking with it our kids or maybe a challenge lobbed against us, Lord. I pray that you will help all those who are listening recognize that they have that spirit of boldness that is you inside of them and that they can properly apply what they're learning today. In your holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.